0: This week on Writer's Inc.
1: I felt like compelled to keep writing, but at the same time it was really difficult for me. Like I felt like I was like super like depressed writing it. Like I would get like, like be like crying and be like, I don't want to (laughs) do like literally.
0: J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and Indie Powerhouse's Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the bestseller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out, schools in session, this is Writers Inn. The uh,
2: the house, uh, the Vinny's Party House in Arlington sold. So, J.D., how'd that closing go? <laughs> I thought about that, too, when I saw that.
3: <laughs> I, I haven't been watching it. So somebody actually bought that place? Somebody bought it.
2: Yep, somebody oh, bought boy. it. Some
3: <laughs> sucker apparently bought that house. Keep an eye on it. Be on Airbnb in no time.
2: Oh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's, spring is on its way. People are going to be looking to break out of their COVID uh, cocoons. I think that would have been a great investment,
3: and head over to Texas. Well, Airbnb like reported like record earnings, you know, which was kind of surprising, you know, with COVID and everything going on. Um, but they actually did a lot of people went on vacation. You know, like in COVID, COVID be damned, they hopped in the car and went somewhere anyway. Um, so it makes for an interesting like this year it's probably going to be insane
4: that makes sense to me though because like people you know uh, i mean as we speak i'm in a cabin that was on airbnb and i'm sure a lot of people went and just because they went on vacation doesn't necessarily mean that they went to you know out and did a bunch of stuff they might have just Went and stayed in a house or something secluded. You know that makes a lot of sense. Actually, their numbers would have been up.
3: Yeah, I honestly, I wanted to see those those stats because I, I, you know, I think a lot of people traveled, but they went to places like where you're at now, where it kind of felt, you know, slightly remote. You know, like they, yeah. they rent, they rented the cabin, they rented the house that was off somewhere in the woods or they rented, you know, but I, I'm guessing that's the case like versus, you know, the apartments and, and smaller, smaller places, but, but who knows? But I'm, I'm sure right now, if, you know, it looks like COVID's kind of on the, you know, the way out, um, which means this year, the tail end of this year is probably gonna be insane with like everybody that's been, you know, been cooped up, you know, for like the last two years, just wanting to get out and go somewhere. it will be a lot, a lot of travel happening.
4: So what you're saying is that I just had to get COVID for it to go away. This whole time, I was the solution.
3: You were the last one. Somebody checked off that name on the list, and they're (laughs) they're packing their bag and they're on their way out now.
4: Yeah, they're just like, okay, we can end COVID now because Zach Bohannon got it. Yep. So,
2: okay, cool. I'll remember (laughs)
4: that next time we have a pandemic.
2: Hey, are you working? (laughs) Is this like a working vacation, or is it a vacation vacation? What are you doing? Both. I'm working and like, yeah, I've I've uh, I hit. I basically.
4: I just about hit my word count today and when we get off here I'm going to do a I mean I'm working now I'm talking to YouTube yeah. idiots so <laughs> um and then when I when I get off here I'm going to do a couple other small things and then uh, I'm going to take the rest of the day off so it's it's a little bit of both Nice
3: Head, heading over to Dollywood
4: I don't think I'm going to do that I thought about going <laughs> to but like I don't know I, I cuz that's one thing I've never done so um, but, uh, but yeah, i I think I'm just going to probably hang around the cabin cause it's the weather here is amazing. It's like in the sixties right now. So I was able to get up and go sit on the patio and read this morning and stuff. And it was, it's, so the weather has been really cooperative. So well, don't um, look at
2: the forecast for tonight then.
4: <laughs> uh, it, it, it may, it, it's probably honestly, but I, I know in Nashville it's raining and like they're having tornado warnings. So I'm sure some of that will make its way over. I'm like three hours from home. So um, you know, which is really far to go for vacation, right? JD, (laughs) as you you made fun of me before we started talking on the podcast, but, uh, yeah, so I've been fortunate. I'm just going to enjoy it and try to get some more work done. I'm trying to catch up because of COVID, you know, I didn't work for several days. So now I'm trying to catch up a little bit. And, uh, this, 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 uh, trip came at a good time. So thanks to my buddy, David, for uh, letting me, hooking me up with this place for a few days. So
3: nice. Well, you sound a lot better. So
4: yeah, I feel I feel really good. So I've been coughing some, but I'm I think I'm pretty much uh, pretty much past it. So and I, I feel bulletproof for a little while because I I feel like I can't get it again pretty quick. So <laughs> I feel oh, pretty bulletproof. I'm sure some
3: new strain is going to come rolling out. You know, next week it'll be all over the news. You know, probably. <laughs> what are you working on this week, JD? oh same, same old stuff um, I was trying to wrap up edits on that, that last book working on something new with Patterson working on a screenplay um, just trying trying to stay focused and you know, honestly trying not to lose touch with my, my general process like I'm going through edits on this book and like one of the steps that I actually skipped this time was, was the beta readers you know the only hmm. people that I've seen this book are my my agents and, and some of the people on, on that side um, and you know I, I think I'm gonna you know it's gonna add probably two or three months before Kristen's gonna be able to take it out but I think I I'm gonna just go ahead and do that anyway, because um, I really miss like my one of the biggest things that I always do is I, I give everybody printed copy and I tell them to highlight any place where they feel like they're skimming, um, and that really helps me when it comes to trimming the fat and just getting the word count down. Um, and I, I don't have that kind of feedback on on this particular book, um, but I'm still trying to take some words out. So I, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna try that. Um, I know Kristen is not gonna be happy, but I, I, I don't want to put it out there if there's there's extra words in there. And you know honestly, it just feels weird putting on a book without going through the beta reader process. You know because things. Get get caught you know and then I'm sure they'll get caught you know with the uh, the publisher and stuff but I, I, I like that feedback from just you know four or five you know regular readers
4: what what was making you not go through that process this time was it time
3: or yeah it's just it's been rushed um okay. know, I spent a little bit extra time writing this one it's a little longer than than what I expected and like Kristen planned on taking it out you know like last year already um, but then she came back with some changes she wanted to make. And then my film agent came back with some stuff he wanted to make. Um, and it's one of those things where, like, I'm writing my current book in the mornings. And then, you know, depending on how much time is left in my workday, you know, I kind of move every, you know, switch hats and, and jump into this one. And sometimes that might mean five minutes or sometimes it might mean an hour. Um, but I'm not putting as much time into it as I normally would. And, you know, now I'm looking at the, the calendar and, you know, we're halfway through February already. You, you
4: you said something interesting that I don't know if we talked about before. And I mean, we, I don't know if we want to go too deep, but like. Um, what kind of stuff does your film agent look for when they look at a draft for a book that hasn't even been published or sold yet?
3: Uh, just, gen- just a general feel like is this going to work better as a feature or as a, a limited TV series or as you know, something with actual se- uh, seasons behind it? Um, budgeting, you know, that, that comes into play. Um, you know, weird stuff sometimes comes up. You know, like with Broken Thing, that book is, you know, like depending on the print version you've got, it's either 790 pages or 900 pages. Yeah, that's a big book. Yeah, yeah. so like getting getting the people out in Hollywood to read that one has been a challenge. So we had to create, you know, like something that they could actually shop the book with, you know, that basically describes what's going on and, you know, how a TV show would play out. You know, it's called a look book. That's what I was working on last week. Um, so it's more or less like a almost like a PowerPoint presentation about the book. So that was something we had to create. Huh. To, entice some of the people that were interested in it. Um, and, you know, those people, you know, like they like that, then they go back and they, they read the book or they listen to the audiobook, um, You know, so just, you got to rope them in. Um, so a lot of stuff like that comes up. Yeah, you
2: know, it's a good reminder. I, I was having this conversation with someone recently, and I said, you know, I think we often forget that reading a book is a big ask. It's a big commitment. Yeah. I mean, regardless of who you are, what the situation is, given the pace of our lives, given what it what it takes, you know, it's, it's good to remember that. It's when you ask someone to read something, you are really asking a lot. It's much, more, uh, it's much more of an ask than just sort of a monetary give. Like buying a book is nothing, but reading it is really a commitment.
3: Yeah. And you know, one of the other things they don't really talk about it, at least on the Hollywood side is the, the process. So like I got a phone call, I guess about two weeks ago from somebody that had a meeting with Sony, um, what well, was going to have a meeting with Sony and they wanted to take one of my books in. you know, broken thing being that, that particular book. Um, when you go into a meeting like that at the studio, it's basically you, you know, standing at the foot of the table, um, and probably, you know, five to 10 Sony executives and at the conference table and you run, you know, that you may have 15, 15 minutes, you may have five minutes, whatever it might be. Um, but you tend to, you know, they, they, they promote a number of different projects. You know, like here's one, here's the next, here's the next. And like, if, you know, they see that they're getting some type of reception, then they, they kind of stick on that, that particular title. But like, they might present, you know, five to 10 different books in that time frame. Um, so you need something that you can put in front of them, whether it's a one pager or, you know, in this case, a lookbook. Um, you don't want to drop an 800 page novel, you know, in front of those people and expect them to, you know, to latch onto it. They're going to look at the cover, they're going to flip it over and look at the back, and then they're going to be thinking about what they're going to have for lunch and they move on. Um, so it's all about, about hooking them um, so you know a lot of, a lot of weird things come into play that have you know literally nothing to do with the story itself but you want to you know you want to be able to communicate that story if you do get somebody hooked you want to be able to tell them you know it's about you know roughly about this you know here's the the characters they're the main characters here's their ages um, get those people thinking about who would play those 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 characters um, you know just the overall scope of the project because uh, that's that's how they approach it they're looking at they're looking at dollar amounts they're looking at who are we going to sell this to where is it going to air if we, we create it you know th- those types of things so it's just it's a weird dynamic you just kind of get you get used to it i guess over time but like I, I i tend to have a lot of it on my mind now as i'm writing because I, I wasn't aware of it with the first couple of books and and now it's first and foremost in my thoughts because it you know i've got a lot of this kind of stuff going on so every sentence i craft you know in caller's game i blew up half of new york you know which was fun from a book standpoint but when you want to go and film that that's a 200 million dollar project um, yeah you know so yeah that's kind
4: of hit on something i was going to ask i was going to ask if like you know, since you've written broken things, I, I think since you've written that book, you've had more stuff option, and that's become more of a regular thing for you. So, it sounds like you are taking into account like the length of your books and stuff a lot more than maybe you were
3: before. Yeah, and you know, the funny thing is, like broken thing for me as just a viewer, like I think would be probably one of my funnest TV shows. Like that's something I would really like to sit. They it, it would watch, be
4: a great it, television show.
3: Yeah, like, it, I mean, it's, it, yeah. it's a tricky pitch, you know. It's it. It's, it is. Yeah. You know, so,
4: but it would be great. Yeah. So.
3: Nice. Let's see nice. where it goes. Um publishing news, I, I I don't know if you guys caught this, but SmashWords and Drafted Digital are merging. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. We saw that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so it's like I guess it was inevitable um, at at some point. Um, you know SmashWorks has they they haven't really updated in a really long time and drafted digital I think is kinda I wouldn't say steamrolled them, but they've, they've really come in hard and, and a lot of people have transitioned over to them. Um, so it does make sense for them to, to all join hands and, and kind of go through this movement uh, together. I, I was looking at it more from the finance standpoint, like back in the days when I worked in, in that world, like if this either of them were a public company, like, you know, I could see the Justice Department stepping in and saying, no, you can't do this. But, you know, because there, there really aren't any other players in this particular world. But you Know that neither of them are public, nobody cares, you know, from that standpoint. Yeah, so it
4: did. Yeah, it was like a blip, it was it was a blip on the radar, like, um, and it was kind of inevitable, you know, yeah. that, that it was going to happen. So, you know, but uh, yeah, yeah, good, good for our friends over at Drafted Digital. Yeah, we love <laughs> the Drafted
2: Digital folks, <laughs> <laughs> so we were really yeah, excited. So, for shout them. out to
4: Kevin and Dan and everybody over there, yeah. and, and Mark, of course. Yeah. So,
2: cool. Uh, well, so for me this week, I got a, more of a, an announcement, I guess, than, than an update, something I've been working on since last fall and can finally talk about it. Uh, this is the Carbon Almanac. Uh, there'll be a link in the show notes if you're interested. Um, Seth Godin posted uh, something on his blog in the fall about a project that he was working on that had to do with putting together a factual resource uh, to address climate change. And I was like, that sounds pretty interesting, and I messaged him, and ended up, he ended up inviting me to the project, and I became one of the contributors on it, and wrote a few articles, and uh, super excited about it. it. It's gonna be published by Penguin Random House on June 21st. And uh, I'll tell you what's really crazy about it, um, is that this was a, a completely volunteer nonprofit effort. So everyone that's involved with, with the Carbon Almanac, including Seth, uh, volunteered their time and expertise Dozens of writers, hundreds of professionals, graphic artists, designers, editors, proofreaders, um, writers—all worked on this single book, and and it worked. And it was crazy because there was no sort of hierarchy. There was—I mean, it's sort of Seth's project, but he wasn't like telling people what to do. And a lot of it just sort of organically happened and I've just been in awe of the process. And uh, maybe once it comes out, we can talk more about it, but um, that news hit this week and it was on Seth's blog and uh, just really excited about it. Really proud of it and curious to see what happens come June.
3: Cool. Congratulations. Thanks.
4: Yeah. It'd be interesting, you know, once it comes out and stuff, it'll be interesting to hear more. And I, I know you were in a, like a slacker Discord group, right behind the scenes and stuff, and so like, yeah, it's pretty pretty interesting stuff that you've been that you know. I'm glad that you're able to talk about it now and stuff.
2: Yeah, so. I mean, as someone who's collaborated on a lot of stuff in a lot of different ways, this was a, an entirely new collaboration experience. Yeah, um, I mean, even more so than I wasn't organizing it, but just being involved in a different way without sort of any firm direction. I mean, there were small groups that came up and they decided like, okay, we want this number of articles and we want to have this number by this particular date. And then people just were like, would raise their hand, be like, I'll write that one, I'll write that one. And you would go off and do some research and then write this concise article and then someone else would edit it. And it just all happened. And it happened in literally months. I mean, JD, you know how the traditional publishing world works. Like, the writing didn't start on this until August or September, so it's less than a year from the time the writing started until it's going to publish, which is kind of crazy.
3: Yeah, that that's fast. Um, and I've noticed these timeframes have been getting smaller at the the traditional guys. And I don't know if it's because the indie world moves so quick, and you know things are kind of aligning a little bit, um, or you know the the current COVID situation and the market just being different. Um, but yeah, I've seen a lot. You know, we just had somebody—I the name escapes me—but we just had somebody on a couple episodes ago, um, a traditionally published, you know, fiction novel, um, where she turned it into her, her agent. Totally surprised her agent by sending it over. The publisher went ahead and got it out like within a couple of months. Um, that just doesn't normally happen. And you know, like these books have to be translated into multiple languages. You know, audiobooks have to be created. That's that's the real reason a lot of these delays take place. Um, so maybe the machine is just getting a little bit more efficient.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think that was Jody Pico's book that you're talking about. Yeah, I think that's, that's who it. Was. Yeah, I think
4: it was Jody Pico's book. Yeah. yeah, that, yeah. I think that was it. Nice. Yep. We'll
2: let's take care of some business and then we'll get to our guests for the week. Wonderful shout out to our friends over there at Kobo Writing Life. Uh, if you are publishing a book wide, then you've got to go through Kobo Writing Life. You get to set your price. You sell in all kind of different countries and territories throughout the world. You get promotional opportunities, and you don't have to be exclusive. So if you don't have an account yet, head on over to KoboWritingLife.com and get started today. Also want to give a shout out to new patron, Carla Haler. Welcome, Carla. Thanks for supporting the show. If you want to become a patron of the podcast, go to Patreon.com slash Podcast, and you can submit questions for our monthly Q&A episode. All right, so who do we got on the docket this week, J.D.?
3: Elijah Jane Brazier. Um, she's a, an author, a screenwriter, a journalist. Uh, her latest book, it's called Good Rich People with Penguin Random House, and it released about a month ago. Um, but here she is, Elijah Jane Brazier.
2: One of your most favorite fleabag moments.
1: Oh my God, one of my most favorite <laughs> fleabag moments? Any of them,
2: there's so many.
1: Um, you know, I really like, like the pilot. I think I've read that like a, a ton of times. The first season, I mean the first season and the second season are so different. But, you know, just like there was like so many like that moment when she has like the job interview and she lifts up her top or like these little things like that that you're like, I feel like this is like taken from like real life. Like, I love stuff like that where you're kind of like, this is so funny. And it's just also so at the same time, authentic and like kind of, you know, surprising. But also you're like, oh, yeah, I could totally see, you know, something like that happening.
2: Oh, I totally agree. <laughs> I mean, I think Phoebe Waller-Bridge is one of the most underrated writers in, in entertainment today.
1: I don't know if she's underrated necessarily, like because she is like she's doing like I mean she didn't didn't she do like Bond and then they have her something else huge. Yeah,
2: she was and underrated, I should the say.
1: First season was like bomb, yeah. So yeah, no, she's she's amazing for sure. Like uh, like I yeah, I wish I could have a, a little bit of that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, I know you've studied the, uh, I think you were, I, I read somewhere you were studying the screenplay, at least of the first season. Were, were there certain things from a writer's perspective that you picked up in there that you're like, ooh, I could really use that?
1: For bag. Yeah. God, you know, to be honest, I feel like there's certain, there's certain people I think that like can really like inspire me. And then there's certain ones that maybe I can't really do what they're doing. And I felt like her screenplays are, or I guess teleplays are like super um, sparse. Um, and in a way I feel like that it just didn't, it doesn't really like tap into something that I can do. Like I love them and stuff, but I'm like kind of, uh, maybe one day, <laughs> <laughs> one day I'll like sort of like be able, but yeah, everyone has kind of like a different voice, I guess, and so I, I don't know.
2: Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, and we all have those very aspirational writers, right? We're like,
1: <laughs> wish I
2: could write like that.
1: <laughs> no, but just like there's certain writers that I think like really talking to something you can do and then there's also ones that maybe don't and sometimes trying to be like those people can actually make you worse yeah as crazy as that sounds it's like something that I've kind of realized like I'll be influenced by something I love but it's like no girl you can't do that like, yeah <laughs> you have to just love it and you gotta stay you know doing your thing <laughs> do you
2: think it's a matter of like trying to cop a tone or or, or maybe even subconsciously trying to write in that style
1: I think it's like about trying to be something you're not. I think that mm. that's like a big part, like for me with, that I've discovered with writing, like there's times, there's been times before when I've been like hugely inspired by other people and I've spent like, you know, years on, on certain projects and then for them to not really have the same like depth or resonance. And I do think it it, it does come from maybe trying to be too much like, oh, I want to, you know, I want to sell something or this is big right now. And I don't think that works. I think you really have to find an intersection between what you can do and like really who you are as a person, the more, you know, yourself, the better writer you are and what you can sell. You do have to think about what you can sell. You do have to think about the audience, but if you're just thinking about that, then you're going to write stuff. That's really soulless and people will be able to tell.
2: Yeah. How did you find your voice?
1: Um, I mean, I think it's just been like a process. I think it's for me, like the bit, the things that I think resonate the most, um, for me when I am trying to like sort of sell a project are things that have like some kind of basis in, um, my own experiences. So like, you know, uh, if I disappear was like talking about like what it's like being sort of like a single woman in America, um, good, rich people a lot of it is inspired by my own experiences living below the poverty line and kind of like coming out of that um, and also interacting with extremely wealthy people. And I feel like the more that I like tap into like my own experiences, the stronger writer I am. But again, at the same time, you do have to think about the audience. It can't just be like this self-centered, like I'm writing for therapy.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, let's talk about your new book, Good Rich People, depending on when you're listening has just come out. Uh, I don't want to, I don't want to give too much away. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about Lila and Demi and sort of the dynamic between those two characters.
1: So, yeah, it's basically um, kind of like the setup is that there's sort of one character who is struggling, like, with uh, homelessness. And like I said, like that kind of was like inspired by my own experiences. And then there's a So that's Demi, the Demi character. Right. And then there's Lila, who is living in like extreme wealth. Um, and so we sort of they both are kind of dissatisfied with their lives, I guess, for different reasons. And they and they want more. Um, and Lila's husband and her mother-in-law are like just extremely, let's say like really crazy (laughs) (laughs) and they like to play games with people who, um, are like self-made people. So they invite people to live in their guest house and then they basically like set about to like ruin their lives. Um, and just sort of basically, I guess, by kind of coincidence and tragedy, Demi ends up in the guest house and she's the target of their game. And she has her own reasons for, for not wanting to to um, give up this sort of like new life, like even though she, they, and then they have their, I guess, reasons for, for sort of like wanting to destroy her. Um, so it's, yeah, like this whole sort of game that plays out and just gets like crazier and crazier. Till the
2: end, <laughs> which we won't spoil.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and then what happens is no, <laughs> Uh
2: What about uh, how much of how, how much of you is in Demi? Like, can you can you talk about like where some of that came from?
1: Sorry, what was the question? Um, how
2: much of you is in Demi? Like, where oh, did that come from?
1: Well, I mean, I guess I feel like I should be careful because she does some pretty bad things in the book. <laughs> it's not like that much. Um, but like when I talk about like her backstory and stuff, that's all like n- based on like everything that like sort of like happens to her is not, is like a fictionalized version of reality. Mm-hmm. And I think there's like, I didn't really think about it this way, I guess, until later. But so when I wrote this book, I was living in um, Beachwood Canyon in Hollywood. And I was living in a duplex and I was like in this downstairs, like dark apartment. And then upstairs was like this uh, very successful couple. And um, so in a way, like the whole story of Demi is kind of like my own story because it's like her backstory is my story. And I was like living. That was the nicest place I had ever lived. But when I was living there, I remember like I would have people, for example, that I worked with in Hollywood, like come to that house and be like, oh, this place is creepy. This place is weird. And I was like, what? Like I was like, this is the nicest place I've ever lived. Like this has one bedroom, you know? A whole like full bedroom. Hello. Is- oh, well, yeah, i have like never had a one bedroom before, you know, like just to me or whatever. And yeah, so it just kind of makes you realize that like no matter sort of how much you ascend, and like to me, it was a huge ascension, you know, to come from like, you know, having sort of n- not a lot to having more than I would have made in my lifetime, you know? Um yeah, but it's still like for a lot of people it wasn't enough. People are so freaking snobby. <laughs> so yeah, like it's a lot of it is inspired by my I guess my own like frustration and also like my own sort of journey in a way and just like you know, having more money and trying to figure out like how can you be a good person, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's just it's crazy.
2: You don't play this card, but how did you of av- how did you steer around the class warfare? Idea that that maybe sort of be could be interpreted that way.
1: What does it mean, uh, class warfare idea? Uh,
2: well, this idea about like you know pitting the uh, the less fortunate against the the ultra wealthy, you know, just is a g- very general stereotype.
1: Yeah. How did I steer around that? I mean, um, I feel like just like by trying to like make the characters as layered as possible. I mean, I don't think that that it's necessarily. Uh, it's more about their journeys than it is necessarily, I guess, about like destroy destroying each other. Right. Know?
2: Yeah, you personalized say. it. Yeah. Yeah. How was the How was the process for good rich people different than uh, if I disappear, or was it?
1: Well, I mean, yeah, it's always different. So, like when I wrote "If I Disappear," I was working like six to seven days a week at this like horse stable. I was doing like uh, summer horse camps and stuff. So that was like hard in a way, because it's like, I would have to wake up at like five and like work for an hour. And for some, I mean, I have gotten to the point now where I I do enjoy writing. I didn't at that time, but I still want to do it because for me, it like represented like hope in my future, you know, because like, obviously I was, at that time I was living in LA and I'm working like a job that paid like less than minimum wage, Um, (laughs) you know? So it's like, I felt like compelled to keep writing but at the same time, it was really difficult for me. Like I felt like I was like super, like depressed writing it. Like I would get like like be like crying and be like I don't want to do, this. <laughs> like literally. But like I was still like, like I have to push through and try to do this because this is like kind of my only way out of this. I, I couldn't survive. I couldn't continue to survive at the amount of money that I was making. You know, um, and just being single and everything so i had to kind of like push through it so that was really hard um and then you know for good rich people (laughs) i thought it was going to be better but then there was a pandemic (laughs) so like even though i didn't have to like work every day i was like depressed for a different reason um so yeah dude that was also really hard but then um at the very end like so i'd written i wrote two other versions of this book like Full versions, right? I rewrote this book twice. Wow. Um, Yeah. And so the very last version, I had like a month uh, before kind of like a hard deadline, let's say. And I didn't think the book was working. I didn't think it was strong enough. So I had an idea to make it cooler. And that was like the whole idea of making a game before there wasn't a game. So I pitched it to my editor, like she was on board, and I rewrote the whole book in like five weeks. And that was the first time in years that I enjoyed writing a book. And then now it's it's like my next book that I worked on, you know, I enjoyed more than not. So it's really been cool for me to like get to that point because I think sometimes when you're not enjoying writing, you feel like guilty. You always feel guilty writing. <laughs> like there's always some way. Um, but no, it was just cool for me to like be, ha- feel like I was able to kind of like push through that. Um, and get to the point where like, oh, it was actually, there was elements. I mean, even though it was hard, like I was working a lot, it was fun to write, you know?
2: Why did you have to rewrite it twice?
1: Um, You know, it was really, I just felt like it wasn't strong enough. I think initially it's also hard if you're dealing with something that's so personal, it's hard not to like get bogged down by it. So I felt like the first two versions, it was kind of like more depressing. It just didn't feel like it had like uh like that kind of like drive and like a goal for the characters um and so i think like putting the whole game element really helped and then also like making it more humorous it wasn't originally like i thought of the final version as like a black comedy that wasn't originally the tone and i felt like that kind of just helped because it made it more fun for me to write And it's more entertaining. Like, it's more like over the top. Like I literally took everything that was in the book before. And I like just turned it up to 11. You know what I mean? Like before it was like, they went paintballing. Like that was literally what happened. And I was like, no, what if, well, I guess I don't spoil (laughs) (laughs) it. But I just like took all those little elements and like, was like, how can I make this like the biggest possible, you know, version, I guess.
2: I love that. I love that idea of just amping it up. Like, right. Just as Turn it to eleven, as high as it can go, and and yeah. really exaggerating it. Uh, th- this is a question that only writers will understand. W- when you say you rewrote it, did you revise your manuscript or did you rewrite it like from scratch?
1: I like totally rewrote it. Wow. The only chapter that like stayed from um, the beginning is probably like the like a couple of pages that were like Demi's backstory because I kept that because like I said that was kind of like inspired by reality. But literally, yeah, like every word. I mean, there's some elements, like not to like get like but there's some elements of the structure. Like I'm going to be working on like the TV show and there's some elements of the structure like in the middle that I will probably change, but that kind of were there because I had already built that framework. So like there's certain things that happen that it's like, you're kind of like, oh, that's weird. But (laughs) sometimes that can be kind of cool because it's unexpected. Um, But yeah, it's like in a way I had like this kind of framework that I built it on top of, but every scene was different.
2: I see. Do you do revisions when you write?
1: What does it mean? Uh, So like, like, do you,
2: do you write a first draft and then go back over it? Or are you one of those writers who's like, you write the first draft and it's pretty solid?
1: I mean, I try to like force myself through. And then if I get lost, I will go back. I do write like pretty clean first drafts, but I would say that that can actually sometimes be a negative because if you're writing like a, it doesn't, you don't have as much time to like develop stuff. So it's something can appear to be done to me. I'll be reading it back and I'll be like, oh, this sounds done. But really like you don't necessarily have like the development of like character or plot underneath. You know what I mean? Like, so it can appear to be done because it's so clean. Like it's not messy. Like I can hand this in, but really um, it's just surface, you know? So I have to be like kind of careful with it. That's why I end up, I think, rewriting stuff more often than I end up like, um, I don't know, reworking stuff. Right. Because it's like, it's not, the the problem isn't, I guess, how it's written. It's like what is written.
2: When you're rewriting, do you have the old manuscript in front of you and you're like reading it and then typing? Or is it completely out of sight and you're just typing?
1: Uh, Usually I have to, I don't even look at it. Yeah. Wow. Okay. It's like when I'm talking about rewriting, like I'm literally, yeah, yeah, like talking about like this, the whole thing, because I find that there's, for me, it's like it can be, I think that you can, and I, you know, people say this, it's like you can be like, your story can be killed by a good scene just as easily as a bad one. And a lot of times it's the stuff that we want to hang on to. And that's kind of probably what also made the first versions not so good, because it was like I was trying to cling to an outline I had given my editor. And I was trying to like cling to like, oh, she said she liked this scene. So I need to make, and that can like kill you. I've had that with scripts too, where people were like, oh, we like this ending. And I'm like, no, because I, if I do that ending, the whole thing, I can't make it work. I mean, maybe someone could, but, you know, so that can, I think for me, it's like, I'd like just throw everything out, you know?
2: Do you start with a blank page or do you plan ahead of time?
1: Um Yeah, a blank, pretty much a blank page. Usually I'll just start with like, like an I, I'll get like an op, like the opening I'll have the opening scene in my mind and then like I'll I'll try to say like okay I'm working toward like I'll just divide it into like quadrants right because it's like we all know that sort of story save the cat kind of story structure right so you're like okay so although usually I think the catalyst has to happen like super early now um, but like at least I know like I'm working towards this something like this at the mid at the midpoint you know and then just kind of like keep going. <laughs>
2: What does and what does that <laughs> process look like for you? Are are you in a cafe? Are you on a laptop? Are you handwriting? Like, what are you? What's I your writing process?
1: A, I wish it's literally <laughs> like you're looking at it. Well, <laughs> it's a podcast. Um, I you know I just wake up in the morning, do like my. Tr- I have a horse in my backyard. I do all my chores, and I just sit down on my computer for like three hours and just like write. Sitting on my couch, and then. Yeah. Then I go ride my horse and I come back and write some more.
2: Do you have any sort of uh word count targets or pages per day or anything that you're shooting for?
1: I mean, I guess I do, but that can also, I feel like, again, that's like something that can become a problem. I think for, if you can write super fast, it depends on the person, I guess, but like, I'll try to hit like say 3000 words a day, just because it's like, so that I um, can get something done. But it's like, I think that can be sometimes bad to be obsessed with like uh, word counts because you'll end up pushing past a point where you're lost and you'll keep going because you're like, I have to hit that target. And if you're, if you, you know, go past the point of being lost and you just get more lost <laughs> <laughs> and then you end up having to go back and rewrite the whole thing. So I try to just be like, I feel like the more that I've written, the more like I become aware when I need to stop you know, and it maybe it not necessarily where um, I like want to, st- you know, it isn't how many words I want to write, you know, but it's like becoming just more aware of when I know that I'm, I'm forcing it or faking it or when I'm kind of lost or not into it anymore.
2: It, it sounds like though you're, you sit down every day though, regardless of what the output is
1: depends. I, I just, I'm off. I. That's another thing that I've learned. It's like, if you can, it's not always option, but you know, I think that it's really easy to get so focused on like, just like, keep on. It's a hard job because it's like, you're your own boss and you're writing stuff potentially that you wouldn't even sell. So like, I could sit down right now and like write an adult book for nobody. Cause I can't sell it. Um, you know what I mean? So I think it's important to take time off like i think for me i guess it depends on the person some people just like to work all the time but i i am a very i get hyper focused on stuff and i get obsessive and so when i am writing like i don't go i mean obviously COVID anyway but like i don't go out and see people like i don't do anything like everything is focused on that and so i try try to not do that all the time and get obsessed about something else because it just it consumes my whole life
2: (laughs) Was there a moment or, or or maybe when did you feel like you could really make a go at this? When, when did you feel like, okay, I, I kind of know what I'm doing now.
1: I still don't, <laughs> <laughs> man. It's hard. Like this is, it's a hard kind of job. Cause you're like, you know, it's like a gig, gig economy. I don't know. It's, you know, I don't think I ever feel that way. That's like the hard thing. It's really hard to like make plans for the future because I'm a very um, have a probably negative, View? I don't know. So I always think that everything is going to be my last thing. I always am thinking about other jobs like that I would can do every day. You know, it's like even like so, you know, I whenever I sold, I sold YA books like probably like 10 years ago, then I had like a five year break before I sold anything again, you know, and that's like super affected my outlook too. So, like, even though like I have been, you know, able to sell stuff and adult and I've been doing every year better. I always think, well, you know, it's probably going to stop tomorrow. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's weird. I feel like a lot of people feel that way. It's so surprising. Like you'll talk to authors that are so successful and who are on like all these like lists and, and they're still like, Oh, I don't know if, I don't know. I think my next book's going to do really bad. And da, 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 da you know, it's crazy.
2: <laughs> How did you get yourself through that five-year period?
1: Oh my God, well, it was like a like, I mean, there was a lot happening. So I'm a widow. So like my husband died. And then I lost my, i not lost my book deal. I didn't get my option picked up. And I just wasn't like, I was writing all these books and it just really wasn't working. And so I I did this, like I um, there's this book called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron that's supposed to like help inspire you, right? So I was like, okay, well, I'm, this is not my thing, but I'm gonna try. So I started doing it and I felt like it was telling me to stop writing. Like I felt <laughs> like it was like, and I was like, this is the opposite of what I wanted. But it was like, cause it kind of like connects you to stuff that you like, liked in your childhood. And, and I remember like, I used to ride horses. I used to want to live in LA. This, I was living in London at the time. And then I did this thing called the Santiago trail, which is like a 500 mile pilgrimage through Spain, which I did with my parents. And again, I felt like that was telling me to stop writing. So I stopped writing pretty much like, and I moved back to America. I started working at a dude ranch, all this kind of stuff. And I probably stopped writing for almost two years. And then eventually I was like, well, I can't make a living doing horses. So I'm like, I need to go back to writing. Um, So, yeah, but the interesting thing is, and it's like, goes back to like me talking about taking breaks sometimes, like you need them sometimes for your brain, man. I was going through a lot of stuff and all of this experiences that I had because of me taking a break are what, you know, went into me creating If I Disappear, which I then sold and which was like a better, more successful than my other books, you know, and that never would have happened if I hadn't stopped. If I had just kept going and kept like trying to like, you know, beating my head against the wall, I probably wouldn't have gotten a deal or I wouldn't have gotten like such a good deal even, you know, so I think you just have to like, listen to your, listen to your heart.
2: Uh, I, I won't comment about The artist Way because I, I kind of had a similar experience with it. It, it didn't quite work for me.
1: Like, and I feel like I'm like the worst. Like I didn't even do the whole thing. I was so mad, but it actually t- taught me a lot about myself. Like I it, it was not like I was like getting really like aggressive in my answers and like angry. Like and I was like, you know, we're like I, I mean, I had to throw that book away. It was just dark not because of her cuz of me like and i but it made me realize a lot of things about myself that i still to this day i'm like oh dude i have you know uh it helped it honestly helped me in a weird way but like not the way i would expect cuz it was like just going into cuz i'm a kind of a dark person so Whew.
2: so how did you know it was time to get back to the keyboard
1: i mean like like i said man i needed some money like i was <laughs> I was working at that time I was working at a, when I well like when I decided to write start writing again I was working at a barn in Orange County I was living with my parents in San Diego which is like an hour away so I was working six days a week like driving an hour back and forth and I was making like uh, close to minimum wage and so it was like there was no way that that would ever I would ever be able to like survive on that right So that's um, part of the reason. But I actually wanted to write for TV. So I had like some money still saved from my first book, right, that I just didn't really touch. And I was like, okay, I'm going to put some of that money and move to L.A. and try to write for TV. So I moved to L.A., got another horse job and started like researching how to become a TV writer. (laughs) And I was like, oh, shoot, this is impossible. Like you're, you look at like the ways in, quote unquote, and you're like, these are not ways in. Like it's just like a really, uh, you know, difficult. So I had this idea, which became if I disappear, which was the whole like, oh, what if a podcast, true crime podcast host disappeared, right? Which I think is a cool hook. I was like, oh, that's a great hook, right? But I, I couldn't sell it as a TV show because there's no way into that industry. So <laughs> I was like, well, I've sold a book before, so let me try to write this as a book, which I did. And then I sold it. And then I sold it as a TV show with me attached writing it. What a, who could imagine?
2: <laughs> <laughs> is is that your approach moving forward as far as TV goes? Are you going to write the books first and then try and sell those rights?
1: Well, yeah, I already sold, I just closed on a deal I'm probably not allowed to talk about for good rich people with me writing. And the cool thing Congrats. is, yeah, thank you. The cool thing about how being able to sell it that way and I would encourage anyone who wants to to try to sell their books that way because most stuff doesn't get made right like we always hear about like this book is going to be made into a movie and then you're like 10 years later where is it um but the thing is if you can somehow get yourself involved even though the the project doesn't get made you get a you get to learn so much you get to meet all these people have this amazing experience so like it's totally worth it to you regardless of whether anything ever gets made or not you know
2: so, yeah. 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 Awesome, Liza. This has been fun. I, I have one last question for you that, that's just totally open-ended, so there's no right or wrong answer, but uh, it seems like the entertainment industry and publishing in general is really in a state of flux. There's just a lot of things changing right now. Um, what do you see for novelists or for writers in the next three to five years? What kind of opportunities are they going to have? How is it going to look the same or different than it does now?
1: Wow. Well, how is it changing? Well, I mean... Gosh, I don't know. I think how is it how it's changing? I mean, I think it's a really good idea personally to try to write. I think, well, you know, right now it's like TV shows, right? I think that's like the thing that's like obviously is 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 um still like holding strong, like even during uh these tumultuous times, it's a lot harder to get a film made. So I I do think that there's something to be said as a novelist for like approaching writing your book. Um from an angle of saying, could this uh, also be a TV show? And like, how can I kind of like underline that? I mean, I don't know if it'll necessarily work. I think sometimes when you try to like manipulate the system, it doesn't work out. But I think, you know, that's probably a smart kind of target. I mean, more, I guess more people watch TV shows than I would assume read books or or fil- or watch films right now. No one's watching anything. Um, or yeah, superheroes. <laughs> That one just seems like it just keeps going and going. So we get some variants on.
2: All right. Guys, Eliza, man, she was, uh, she was sharp. She was keeping me on my toes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like that. She, she brought a lot of energy to the interview and a lot of interesting comments about uh, writing and, and, uh, and having other jobs. I think maybe a lot of our listeners can relate to that. Uh, let's start with you, Zach. What's some takeaways you had from the, from the interview?
4: Yeah. I mean, there were a few things. First off, I loved, uh, I loved what she talked about. Um, you know, you, there was a couple of things in her process specifically that you talked about, I thought was really interesting. Um, you know, she talked about word counts and you asked her, you know, kind of how she bases her day and stuff like that. And, you know, she, uh, mentioned for her, it sounded like she more just like focuses on how much time she's in the chair and doesn't really chase word counts and more importantly she talked about how she feels like that can be a little dangerous which is something that I felt for a while now like I'm um I quit chasing word counts a while back and just uh like I'll have an idea of where I need to be you know I do the deadline thing in Scrivener but for the most part I don't really look at it and I'm just like you know because I don't know that gave me that really did a lot of it wasn't good for me mentally when i would do that like it's better for me just to sit and make progress and not put so much pressure on myself for word counts and um like so i, I thought th- i thought that was really good that and her um the other thing i thought was really interesting was her uh, her talking about rewriting you know because like a, a lot of times you know we hear like i'm really glad that you specifically asked her like you went deep on that because a lot of times we hear I remember when I first started, and I was trying to learn the process of like how you write a book. I would I would hear people all the time say rewrite, but they weren't literally rewriting the book. They what they really were mean to say was revisions. But I was sitting there thinking, am I supposed to rewrite the book? Like I don't. But she actually does. Like when she says rewrite, that's what she's doing. She's sitting down and rewriting the book. Which um, I don't know. It was that was that was really interesting and not something that we've talked about a lot on the show before.
3: Yeah, that kind of hit home with me and brought back a lot of memories from the book doctor days. Um, So revisions is basically, you know, when you go through the book and, you know, you're correcting this comma, you're moving this sentence around, but you're more or less leaving the the text intact. Um, One of the exercises I used to go through as a book doctor, you know, when I had a particular chapter that I had to to rewrite for for somebody, um, I would print out that chapter, I would go through it with a highlighter, and I would highlight whatever the key points were that needed to actually come across in that chapter. So, you know, it, it could be 10 paragraphs, but I might highlight like one or two sentences this, um, then I would just flip that page over. And it just focus on those couple of sentences and, and I would rewrite, you know, the, that entire chapter. So I wouldn't have it in front of me. I wouldn't be looking at what was written previously by the you know in, in a book doctor scenario or ghostwriter, you know, written by somebody else. All I was focused on is what were they actually trying to communicate with that chapter, and I would rewrite it. And 99.9% of the time, whether I do that for my own books or whether I did it for somebody else's or I encourage somebody to do it that way, the second draft of that or the third draft is always better than the first um, because more thought is, is put into it. It's just a little bit more concise. Um, it's very difficult to rewrite a chapter, you know, like if you have that chapter on your screen and you're just moving words around because you're basically going to end up with another version of what you started with rather than an improvement on, um, you know, where you, you came from.
2: Yeah, I was fascinated to hear that too, which is why I kind of pushed her on on the specifics of it. I can remember at one stage in our co-writing process, Zach, I was rewriting your drafts. But the way I was doing it was almost a paragraph at a time. So I would drop the cursor, I would create some white space by hitting just enter a few times. I'd be looking at the paragraph in front of me, rewriting it, and just moving to the next paragraph. So there's all these sort of variations and, and gradations of, of rewriting that can be helpful. But I think the overall point here that, that JD mentioned and that Eliza talked about was how much better the book was. And I, th- I think what's interesting about that is most of us either won't do that or don't want to do that because <laughs> yeah. like, that's just brutal. It's brutal grunt work, but like you almost always come out with something better.
3: I just went through that with, with Patterson on something that we were working on, and he, he basically sent me a couple chapters back, and he said it, it was a, a boyfriend and girlfriend, both teenagers, and it was written from the, the boy's point of view, uh, he, and he had me rewrite the whole thing from the, the girl's point of view. Um, you know, so all of a sudden, I'm in her head instead of his head, and you know, a totally different scenario. And, and he was he was spot on, you know, like from an overall you know book standpoint, it just it came out better that way. So there's there's a lot of different reasons for doing that, but that's definitely one of them.
2: I have a uh, I have a, a trunk manuscript that um, JD you gave me some good feedback on that I'm going to do that I'm going to r- completely rewrite it with a different POV. I think that's going to change everything. But uh, I'm not <laughs> I'm procrastinating a bit because I know how much work is going to be involved in that. <laughs>
4: yeah, you bring that one up to me every now and then. I know you're not looking forward to it necessarily, but you but you the thing is though is you 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 recognize that jD was right, and that's what needs to happen, you know and and that. and I think that you know, coming specifically for me, like coming from the indie perspective on this, I mean, I think that one thing that happens is we get so caught up in here, you know that you gotta like release stuff really fast and blah blah blah. and it's like you tell yourself you don't have time to do that stuff. but at the end of the day, you know, you got to put a really good book out (laughs) and sometimes that might mean that you have to do a pro like you have to rewrite chapters, half the book or the entire book. And I think that, um, you know, as I'm getting further along and, and kind of getting away from some of those normal myths and just like going with my own process and doing what's best for the book, like I could see myself doing something like this at some point when before I would have been like, uh, I don't have time. Like even listening to her, I was telling myself, I was saying, ah, you know, um, she's a she's a pantser like because i think she said that she I, I could be wrong about that but i think that came up and like the people who i have heard that rewrite the most are usually people that pants so i think for me it was easy to be like oh why well, plan i'm an outliner i wouldn't have to do that but that's not necessarily the case at all i think it's more it more happens with people who pants but it doesn't mean like that even just because you plan something doesn't mean you wouldn't have to rewrite to make the pros and stuff better so yeah
2: i kind of want to uh I want to change direction a little bit. And J.D., I want to ask you this question, because I think this is something a lot of our listeners think about. Uh, Eliza, I think she didn't say this explicitly, but I think she kind of recognized that if she wanted to get into television writing or screenwriting, that L.A. was important. It was important for her to be there. She talked about her apartment not being like, you know, the greatest, but like she she was sort of in the town where the industry happens. What are your thoughts on that?
3: Uh, it's a hundred percent correct. I mean, I've I've got a friend of mine um, that I've known since college, and she's a, a producer out there. Um, you know, just to give you an example, like she was sitting at a, in a restaurant having lunch with with somebody that she had worked with before, another producer, um, Michael Douglas was sitting like three or four tables tables over. Um, they had an idea, you know, that kind of related to something that Michael Douglas, you know, could have been a part of or, or sort of fit his his personality. So they they waved him over. The one guy knew him, brought him over to the table, communicated the idea. Douglas, you know, raised his hand, brought over somebody else that was also in the same restaurant and by the time they were done, they had pieced together um, what became the Kaminsky Method you know, which was a show that was on Netflix Oh, um, wow. You know, so like, and none of those people walked into that particular restaurant expecting that to happen, but they walked out with a, a show that aired on Netflix for a number of seasons and, and won a bunch of awards um, You know, so you, you can you can definitely break into that world from a distance, but it, it helps to, to be right there um, From a writer's standpoint, you know, one of the things that she had mentioned, you know, as far as writing her own screenplays that's huge if you can you can do it because you know there's, there's certain pieces you have to line up in order to have a tv show you you need a, the, the the biggest player is actually somebody called a showrunner um, which a lot of people don't you know really hear that term but it's basically like the you know the puppet master the person who kind of wrangles everybody else um, but they keep everything on track but you need a showrunner you need a director you need a head writer um, and if, if you're lucky you need a, a star and and those are the kind of components like if you get two or three of those together it, it, it's very easy to rope in the, the other ones um, so if you're approaching that table and you've got your book and you're able to write the screenplay, you're already, you know, eliminating a couple of those those things and taking some of the, the difficult pieces off the table which get you that much closer to the finish line. Um, so it's, it's very helpful if, if you can, you know, switch hats. It's, it's very difficult to write a screenplay if you're used to writing a novel or, or vice versa. You know, if you're used to working out in Hollywood on scripts, trying to turn a script into a, a book is, is very difficult too.
2: Is the formal title showrunner, is that the executive producer, the EP?
3: No, it's a it's a totally different person. Okay. Um, okay. most executive producers are people like me. Um, so, like, I'm an executive producer on every one of my projects, and it, it basically means that, you know, in my case, like, it was based on IP that I created. So, I kind of have a, a slightly bigger role, um, you know, and a slightly bigger paycheck, um, and I've got a say in the, the various you know elements and things that happen in the show. Um, but but that's it. And and a lot of those people tend to be the people who kind of brought it together. So, if you watch the opening credits, which I, I watch a ton of credits now, which I never did before, just kind of watching the names to see if you know who's who's you know I, I see it in you know random places. Um, but you know, those are the the people that you know basically got everybody organized you know so if you think about my friend at the the lunch you know like the people that were sitting at the table with her you know wrangling those people in they're most likely all the executive producers on, on that particular show
4: yeah that's kind of what you are for this
3: podcast
4: like you're <laughs> the executive producer Jay's the showrunner and I'm like the grip
3: <laughs> <laughs> So you're, you're running no, a, but it's, the food truck over in the corner.
4: It, what you said too is really interesting too about, um, you know, like being where the action is pretty much. I mean, that, that makes a ton of sense. I mean, I could see like the scenario you talked about of Michael Douglas, like that's probably not going to happen in Missoula, Montana, you know, no. but like it's, and, and I see that living in Nashville, like living in Nashville. I mean, there's a reason that's, you know, so many musicians move here and they're willing to basically play for nothing down on Broadway because, Th- you know they're hoping that they you know run into you know Keith Urban or you know a- and Dirks Bentley or any like country star you want to think of or some big producer or something like when they're out at the bar you know because they can run in these people and that's where you know they get their opportunities and stuff so that that makes a ton of sense too
3: so yeah one of the other things she touched on is um, you know, trying to write like someone else can make you worse. Um, I totally, mm. totally agree with that. And, and I think most writers kind of start out that way. I think when we first you know, sit down to write our first book, we tend to emulate whoever it is we read a lot. Um, and I, you know, that's where you, you hear, you know, where you have to write like 500,000 words or a million words. I, I, I think that really comes into play in this. I think, you know, roughly the half million mark is when you actually find your own voice and, and stop sounding like whoever it is you read all the time. Um, I, I think that's important um, depending on what you're doing. I mean, back when I, you know, like when I wrote uh, Dracula for Bram Stoker's family, you know, we incorporated a lot of Bram's original notes in that, that book. So like I purposely had to emulate them. Um, so in order to do that, I listened to Dracula, the audio book on a constant repeat or repeat during the entire writing process. And you know, I did nothing but read Bram Stoker material uh, just to get his cadence in my head. So you can, you can force the issue too. And if you want to work as a ghost writer, I used to have to do that all the time, you know, I, I would, cause I was finishing novels for people that it started them. You know, you can't switch voices halfway through. You have to sound the same. Um, so that, you know, if you want to get into that world, that's something that you want to practice a little you bit.
2: You were sleeping in a box of dirt down in your basement. <laughs> and I was about to ask. If, yeah.
3: It didn't get quite that bad. No,
2: <laughs> no, but you're, it's, it's, you bring up a really good point. It's funny cause
4: I was actually having a conversation last night with some folks about this, um, about how, you know, your voice is what makes things unique, but you have to work to build that voice. I mean, there's, Um, You know, so many people are always trying to come up with like these super original ideas or they don't want to write this type of book because it's not original. But like, as we know, you know, there's really only seven stories that have ever been told pretty much. And like your voice is what makes things unique. But, you know, I think naturally we all start out writing like the stuff we read, but eventually Um, You know, we grow our voice over, like you said, JD, writing tens of thousands, million words or whatever, you know, Um, and and eventually get, get that voice. And that's what, you know, helps you build an audience and, you know, all that good stuff moving forward. So...
3: Cool. You know, I honestly, I run into it a lot, you know, working with Patterson because when I'm writing with him, I have to emulate his voice. You know, like his, his readers expect a certain yeah. tone, certain sentence structure, things like that. Um, which is why I alternate and kind of, you know, I do one book with him and one book on my own. Um, but it takes me a little while to get back into my own head again to find my I'm own. I'm sure voice that's for,
4: interesting process. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's
3: usually a lot of rewriting at the you know the beginning of both of those books. In you know, the first two three chapters or so, I have you know for his books I have to rewrite once I get my my mind wrapped around his voice again or vice versa. You know, I start working on my own book and it sounds like a Patterson book for those first couple chapters and I find myself again and have to go back and rewrite them to, to get you know back to a, a JD Barker book so if I would have
4: if I would have known that JD was or Jay was rewriting every single paragraph I wrote I would have just tried <laughs> to write like him I guess maybe I would have saved you some time uh, maybe that's I mean, why we're not collaborating anymore I don't
3: know. it would have been such a better book if you had done that <laughs>
4: probably it probably would' have been way better so
3: Oh
2: well, cool. Uh, Eliza's a talented writer, super scrappy. I loved her energy. Uh, you know, this is this is one of those real stories of real writers, and, and I think that's really inspiring. So, really grateful that she came on and uh, and shared some time with us. Uh, so, uh, who? What do we got next week, J.D.? I've, I'm not sure what we have up next. Uh,
3: we, we've got an interesting couple of weeks coming up. Next week is our Q&A. Um, so if, you know, if you've got questions and you haven't had a chance to get them out there, um, go ahead and do that. Um, after that, we've got uh, Scott Steindorf coming on to talk about Station 11. He's one of the producers. Um, and then Gillian Flynn after that. Um, so exciting couple of weeks. Excellent. Mark your calendars. It's going to be fun.
2: To our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning
0: to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.